it's time to shake up that paradigm. Welcome to Infinite Banking Radio. Hey everyone, this is Patrick Donahoe. Thank you for downloading uh, this episode. This is episode 77. I have an interesting guest today. His name is Chris Wade of Back Office Connection, which is out of Kirkland, Washington, and it's a co-sourcing form for, uh, for investment managers. And Chris has been in uh, the financial services industry for about 15 years. And uh, we actually met in a very, very unique way, so you don't want to miss that. And Chris also has a very compelling story in regards to some financial service, uh, financial service industry fraud that he experienced uh, firsthand. Uh, so stick with us to, the, to that interview. Infinite Banking Radio is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Paradigm Life's mission is to provide sound financial education. The lack of it in our society is the root cause of many of the social and political problems that exist. As a result, individuals continue to follow the status quo and make financial decisions that fail them. Infinite Banking Radio will address the difficult-to-tackle financial issues that are out there and, most importantly, give you the viable solutions and strategies to solve them. The topics you'll hear about range from specific economic and market issues to theoretical big-picture ideas and strategies. Over the last seven years, our guests have been renowned economists, best-selling authors, and successful real estate investors to help solidify our perspective with the end goal to help you, our valuable listener, to make better financial decisions and come closer to financial freedom. Now here's your host, Patrick Donahoe. Hey everyone, welcome back. All right, before we begin this interview, I wanted to talk about some uh, recent developments at Paradigm Life that you want to be aware of. Uh, first, this past week, we actually released uh, an app uh, that houses our Infinite 101 e-learning program as well as our podcast, and we're also going to have uh, a stream to our video channel on there as well. So uh, it's just on Android right now, and it will be on uh, Apple's iOS in the next uh, next couple of weeks. Uh, so if you do have a smartphone, make sure you check out that free app. Uh, also, we've made some uh, improvements to our uh, e-learning program, Infinite 101. Uh, of course, you can register for free uh, off of our website, which is www.paradigmlife.net. And also, we have a special section for our clients. And so if you are a client of ours, uh, make sure you reach out to uh, Janae, which is jtelford, T-E-L-F-O-R-D, at paradigmlife.net. And she can give you a username and a password and grant you access to that back end of the website. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get to our interview. Uh, so first off, Chris, welcome. Thanks, uh, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for having me. So it, it's actually kind of a funny, a funny story of, of how uh, I first got your email, and I have to admit that I was actually in church when I got the uh, got the email. And not to say that I'm browsing on my phone during church, but my my wife uh, uh, was pregnant, and uh, I was kind of in that that time where uh, you know I had to be on call, and so I got this buzz on my phone, and it was a message from LinkedIn, and it was a uh, it was a LinkedIn group email which went to the Eagle Scout forum, uh, which we're both, we're both Eagle Scouts and we're a part of that LinkedIn, LinkedIn forum. So I got this email from you and it was in regards to uh, a topic that really piqued my interest, which was, uh, that you're trying to, you know, crowdfund a book, 
based on an experience you had in the financial services industry uh, in relation to your boss who had committed some uh, some financial fraud and you actually turned him in. Uh, is that correct? Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, it, it, very unfortunate circumstance, um, you know, a number of years ago, and uh, got to thinking about it here in the last couple months, and, and, and decided to go ahead and start a project to um, to kind of bring it to fruition and actually write about it and tell my story. And it's interesting. I mean, you know, it, I we you know had some discussions in the past, and there's there's been lots of you know documentaries and and books that have come out on on this topic. Uh, I think two of the most probably widely known uh, frauds was just kind of the chaos that happened with the meltdown of 2008 and 2009. And there's a, a really good documentary that's uh, narrated by Matt Damon, which is Inside Job. Uh, it's won a ton of awards, and it goes into a lot of detail about some of the some of the stuff people try to pull in the uh, in the industry. And then also chasing chasing Madoff, which of course is the probably the biggest fraud that's ever occurred. And the idea behind that is about behind that documentary is that the SEC was given forewarning uh, a, a decade in advance and didn't do anything about it. And uh, so again, the, the book that you're writing is is looking into something that happens all the time and people are just oblivious to, which is just a lot of the. Um, you know the malpractice and the the fraud that exists in the financial financial services industry, and I think you know your your book uh, specifically, as well as other books that have come out, it's it's all going to hopefully uh, show individuals that uh, sometimes you have to really be cautious and educated about what you do with your money, and just because a person has you know initials or uh, a specific degree or uh, the licenses, et cetera, doesn't mean that they're that they're credible. Uh, now this happened. Now this didn't happen in the last couple of years, Chris. This happened uh, over a decade ago, correct? Right, right when you got into the financial services industry, from what I remember. That's correct. It happened about uh, almost exactly um, 13 years ago, back in 2001, and um, I had just left a. In fact, I quit a job in in Silicon Valley, um, essentially San Francisco, rather. In, in order to to pursue this opportunity uh, there in the heartland in Kansas City, and so I quit the software job to get back on the financial services side um, because I knew the software so well. And so, um, uh, you know, ha- having having it occur, uh, you know, 13 years ago or three years ago uh, is sort of irrelevant to me because I remember it like it was yesterday. Yep. So that obviously, if it happened right at the beginning of your career, it's going to, you know, of course, give you uh, some perspective of, of the rest of your career. So why don't you just maybe give us a brief? I know the book is going to tell the tell the story, but maybe give us a brief backstory of uh, of this guy that uh, that you discovered. Uh, and I know he said some specific things and really gave you some evidence that made you question his uh, his level of, in, of integrity and morality. So why don't you give us a little bit of of the backstory? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give you the whole rundown. Um... So, um, you know, in my uh, one of the things that really drove me, uh, you know, made me motivated to take this position in Kansas City, um, was the fact that the the gentleman at the time was something of a darling of of, a, uh, of Peter Lynch out of uh, Boston, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. and he had been published alongside um, inside uh, inside Forbes magazines um, for you know several of. of of little uh, cases on um, why you should go with an investment manager or an investment uh, an independent investment manager. So 
you know, in the mid-90s and the early 2000s was really the rise of the RIA. And so there's a lot of expansion, uh, as we saw, uh, mutual funds, um, you know, facing these, you know, historically very large fees. There was something of an exodus of money uh, from mutual funds themselves back to an independent advisors. And so uh, the gentleman I went to go to work for was kind of caught up in that uh, rapid expansion uh, on the investment advisory front. And so, you know, he, he had something to the reputation of, of being a, a stock picker. And, it, you know, that was one of my d things that really drove me is to get away from, you know, the guts of how the stuff works and get into, you know, what are the calls? How do you look at value when you, when you uh, look at stocks? And so I was really driven to learn that piece of the business. And uh, upon my arrival, he had uh, about 135, possibly 125 million under management, if memory serves me correctly, and uh, a pretty, pretty good-sized uh, book of business. And he left Boston ostensibly to escape the rat race. And he, he told me that you know uh, Kansas City is a much better place to to raise a family. And so I'm, I'm, I've set up shop down here. I really want you to to come to Kansas City and and uh, we'll build this thing together. Interesting. So you so when you came into Kansas City, you, there weren't a lot of you know, he he basically walked away and you paired up with him. So there weren't a lot of employees in that in that practice, right? That's correct. Uh, when I arrived, there were exactly two other employees. Uh, the story was that uh, you know everybody else he had a small shop in Boston and they were all family people and they had you know roots in Boston and. And he had grown, he just kind of got tired of Boston. And so, you know, he, he wanted to raise some, uh, um, his family uh, just somewhere else. So it was like this personal, uh, very, uh, you know, personal story. And I could totally buy, you know, totally, uh, you know, took him at his word at every turn there. And there's no reason not to because, yeah, he was very well connected in Kansas City. Um, he had all of the, you know, all the window dressing of, being a legitimate money manager, and so there was no reason to doubt uh, the reason for the move uh, or anything like that. And nobody, uh, and nobody at his office wanted to leave Boston. They all wanted to stay, and since he was small enough, he could do that with you know little to no hassle. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was hire number four um, back in Kansas City, and essentially hired to be his right hand guy. Okay, so so at that, I mean, obviously, with with if history serves me correctly, in the late '90s, I mean, it was some of the biggest some of the biggest gains that the market's ever experienced. And I know that's kind of when you know you threw a dart at a a wall full of stock picks, you'd probably go up by you know a similar percentage of every everything else. Uh, but then you had you know obviously the correction which occurred uh, going into 2001 and 2002, and and is that the time where you started to scratch your head at a few things? Yeah, so um, it was it was a whirlwind of activity, and one of the things I go into in, in the book is sort of the persona. And I, there's a reason I haven't mentioned my guy my, by name because I don't want to focus on 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 the gentleman in particular, but rather on the persona of the fraudster in this industry. <clears throat> and so it was a whirlwind of activity. We were always busy. We we're always doing something. And um, so the, the, I think it's very important to note that. Uh, he had two pieces of the business, an individual, uh, an independent um, advisory firm, which is SEC registered, um, and there's also the unregistered advisor, uh, which was his hedge fund at the time, or a partnership. And he was uh, both uh, the general partner 
as well as the uh, money manager for that piece. And it's not an unusual arrangement. Um, it actually happens um, very, uh, you know, I won't say very frequently, but it happens, and, and there's nothing wrong with it. And there should be a heightened level, and there is a heightened level of um, attention anytime that do, does happen. It, it's definitely a flag from an SEC standpoint. Okay, the, this particular advisor is more sophisticated than the average bear, um, and so it was definitely had uh, had an, an additional compliance load to it. Um, so if you remember, he had this 125 million total under management. And about three million of that, uh, possibly two million, uh, I believe two million is the number, was in this hedge fund, okay. um, which had onshore partnership as well as offshore, which had not been funded. And we, I was there to really help drive um, the, the offshore uh, piece. He, he, uh, we immediately went to London uh, to a roundtable to try and gather uh, uh, foreign money uh, investors uh, to try and rope them in. Uh, to his uh, distressed, long uh, equity strategy that, that he had going. And um, uh, so there, there's a lot of questions as to why he had a, a hedge fund in the first place. You don't really need to do a long strategy with, with something like he did. But the point is uh, he had this other piece, this much, much smaller piece of the business, and I never could get my hands around it. He had, had always had a lot of receipts stacked up waiting for me to kind of go through because the, the partnership accounting was really kind of one of my, uh, the pieces, one of the slices, one of, the, one of my, uh, a big part of my bread and butter was getting in and understanding allocations of fees and, you know, how these things change for part, uh, the values change for partners over time as they come in at different uh, times in the lifetime of the general partnership. So uh, nothing ever smelled right about the books on that. Hmm. Um, everything else was fine. Uh, all of the all of the books we had custody with Schwab, and uh, all of the numbers were always lining up. Never saw any sort of activity to raise an eyebrow out of that. But in this hedge fund, this partnership was very different. I could never make it work right, and so I, I attempted several times to kind of corner and say, "Hey, look, we really have to uh, look at these expenses that you booked." You know, four and five months before I got here, I, I don't know how to book this stuff. You got to help me out. And it was always, well, let's deal with it later. We've got more priorities. We, either, it's either we're going to London or we just got back from London or we've got this now um, to worry about. So he's always kicking that can down the road. Okay, so what are some of the? So obviously you had you start to have your suspicions, but that what are some of the major things that happened where you started to discover that something was in fact wrong and. And now, instead of asking him, you you decide to kind of go to higher powers or regulatory bodies, et cetera. Well, so you'd have to fast forward um, a couple of months down the road after you know, a short litany of uh, events. Um, it, it was something that he asked me to do. He said, "Hey, look, we need to uh, wire some money, and we need to we need to make it uh, happen today." And I said, sure, you know, just go ahead and tell me. I'll, I'll make it happen. And he instructed me to actually wire funds from this hedge fund, this partnership I was telling you about, uh, to a charity. And I, and I, when he first said it, I thought I misheard him because it was so such an unusual request. I, you know, I said, could you could you tell me that again? And, and so he did. And I hadn't heard him incorrectly. He actually did want me to wire money. Uh, to a charity that was actually uh, being run by his landlord. 
<laughs> so he hadn't actually purchased a home in Kansas City yet, but he was renting a house. And I knew the the owner's name. I, I, I looked at this. I said, well, I, I'm not going to wire money out of a general partnership to a, a landlord of yours. I mean, it's just <laughs> not going to happen. So, you know, there's this look of disbelief as if, well, I, I can't believe you're not going to do this for me. But then he kind of <clears throat> turned on his heels and went his own way. And um, that was the big red flag and, and, and uh, that something was not quite right. And And then... The, the other red flag was the, the fact that he went ahead and did it. Um, oh, without okay. Uh, and, so he actually did make the wire transfer, but he did it himself. He, he did it himself. And it, I, I'm not exactly certain how he thought <clears throat> I would actually go along with it until you look at you know what was happening at the time. Uh, so I actually went to go work in Kansas City in March of 2001, and we spent the whole summer in you know, sort of this uh, aura of uh, mistrust had been building, and then he asked me this uh, essentially uh, on September 13th, uh, two days after um, 9/11. Of course, the tower yeah, yeah, came yeah. down. Yeah, and so uh, I think he was, you know, asking me that to do that then because he thought he could get me off balance somehow. Okay. And I think that it's easy to understand that everyone was off balance. Sure. But it was such a clear, <laughs> uh, it was such a clear violation of the fiduciary duty to take money from a general partnership and sending it to a charity that I, I just don't know what sort of logic in his head, you know, made him think that um, I would do something like that. Okay. No, so that that was the only flag, and and there was there was I, I remember from our initial conversation you. You discussed with him the fact that you were a, a Boy Scout, specifically an Eagle Scout, and he did something somewhat peculiar, didn't he? Uh, yes, he. Um, you know, in, in, in retrospect or in hindsight, you know, being what it is, I think he was kind of showing his true colors. So the, the you know, that story, he and I were walking like we often did uh, to a uh, bookstore uh, just down the street, Barnes and Noble, I believe, and. Um, we passed some Boy Scouts, and the, the, the topic of scouting came up, and I mentioned at some point that I was an Eagle Scout, and um, he, he stopped as we were walking uh, very abruptly, and he got, uh, you know, through he, he, courteous, friendly, kind, and, and made his way through the Scout law while holding a Scout sign, yeah. and at the end of it, he just kind of... He, he's, he, he makes the sound like I'm just like did I just hear him right and and then he converts the scout sign into um, into a rather offensive uh, gesture that we would know as a salute to Hitler and when he did that I just I was I was in utter shock I was um, to, to say I was offended would not be entirely accurate because again I with this guy I was like that's so bizarre that's really, such a bizarre did this just really happen and, and and mind you it wasn't you know in casual company like it wasn't in you know something crazy to do with your friends or something like this we're out in public we're, we're walking down the street and you know there's other people that can observe what we're doing and I, if anyone else was in earshot or could see what he did, they would also be offended. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't have to be an Eagle Scout to to have taken offense. Sure, uh, it was extremely bizarre, and um, it, and just in, and and so that right there kind of set me off. You know, kind of really perked me up because 
there was a couple other things that happened. I had to give this guy the benefit of the doubt just to remain, you know, working for him. But as soon as he did that, I was committed to sticking around to see if this guy was uh, was shady. And uh, it wasn't too long after that um, uh, that, that September uh, 11 happened, and then I'm caught up, and, and then he, he asked me to do this. And, you know, I, my suspicions had essentially been confirmed with the, him asking me to wire that money from the general partnership. Got it, okay. That he was dirt. And then so the, the, all of it... Um, Together, I was 100% convinced that you know <laughs> this guy. This guy should not be in business. Actually, huh. so at that point, that's kind of when you started to to think about reporting him, getting in touch with the regulatory bodies, and then and then from there, they actually did. They, they did. Uh, did they find him? They put him in prison. I mean, they they. I mean, what what was the result of uh, of uh, of you reporting some of his, I guess, misbehavior for lack of a better word. Yeah, so um, I had to kind of stick to it a little bit, Um, as you might imagine, with everything happening. um, uh, Actually, communicating with the SEC at the time was extremely difficult, Um, uh, so I had to pick up the phone several times. And finally, I got through to a gentleman um, who returned my calls, and that didn't take that long. Um, but I dropped in the mail uh, a, a basic uh, outline of what had happened and followed it up with a phone call until somebody started calling me back. And uh, I interviewed SEC officially in November of uh, 2001, and uh, they essentially shut him down immediately. Um, the, what I had given them, it's very interesting if you go back and look, the, uh, or just from the legal process at all, the SEC can have suspicions about, you know, something an advisor doing something wrong, and uh, but they don't really, they're not really incented to do anything about it until they can do what's, until they have what's called a cause action. Yep. Um, so it, and 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 that uh, cause action uh, is usually going in and, and shutting everything down, possibly contacting banks or. Um, and uh, custodians such as uh, Fidelity, Schwab, or anybody else saying, hey, look, this guy, we need to shut him off. He's no longer um, registered with us. In fact, we're going after him. So there's a whole uh, machine that goes into action to shut these guys down. But um, if if you're familiar with law enforcement in general, um, from from a civilian standpoint, cops... They need, they need something called probable cause yep. <clears throat> to take action. And same same goes with the SEC. And you were able to obviously give them the, the probable cause to, to make them do what they did. And then and, after, and at that point, he was shut down, and then they went into the books, audited the books, and the rest is history, right? And that's exactly right. And so once they got in, you know, it's funny. There's a saying, um, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. Yep. And uh, with my situation... You know, I, I, there was smoke, and there wasn't just fire. There was an inferno. Um, <laughs> uh, once they got in, looking at activity and really con- calling his clients and say, hey, is this guy, have you, in fact, been withdrawing money from your account? And um, they, they had an example of a little old lady. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. Um, when I say that she uh, was actually on her deathbed at the time, uh, she was incoherent, yet her custodian had been receiving her signature uh, for her account to withdraw money. 
And so her account had been actually uh, been depleting while she was uh, essentially in a coma. And the SEC, of course, was very interested to find out um, that, in fact, that there was this advisor that had the, um, the forethought to change her address when she went into the hospital and reroute all communication to an address that he controlled. And so all of the paperwork for that account was being rerouted to himself, and uh, he was essentially writing himself checks out of a client account. Um, and that was all activity that had occurred uh, well before my arrival on scene in Kansas City. So um, that's just a small example of about 25 or 30 counts of fraud that he went up on. Uh, he, he eventually was convicted and served uh, a mere 18 months in a white-collar facility in Pensacola, Florida. Yeah, and I, I mean, I wish I wish this whole story was was an anomaly, but you know, a lot of this a lot of this stuff happens all the time. I mean, that was this was you know 13, 13 years ago, almost thirteen years ago. And so, looking at you know what's transpired between then and now, I mean, there's just there's just countless acts. I remember in the Inside Job documentary, they they just list off you know example after example after example of things that are done kind of behind the scenes that nobody really ever pays that much attention to or at least doesn't get much media or press um but it's it's like i said in the beginning of the of the interview it's it's good that you're going to tell your story it's and hopefully you know it adds on to the other stories that have been told as well uh, just so like i said people can really start to look at what they're doing with their money uh who's managing it who's investing it for them uh, because these days, I think people just you know resort to uh, the trust factor. They they realize that you know investing is not their cup of tea, and so they leverage a person who's deemed credible uh, to to do it for them. And uh, and obviously things like this things like this happen, and it's really uh, it's really unfortunate. And so, but at the same time, it's it's you know the SEC in this case you know did did come through, and because who knows if it, if it had continued on. Uh, those you know twenty some odd counts could have turned into a hundred counts. So it's it's good that you kind of started to, to throw up some smoke signals before it got got too out of control. So hats off to you. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah, it, it is somewhat disheartening um, to know that this exists. I mean, and I think to contrast um, earlier how you were addressing. Uh, Madoff and uh, Enron and these extremely large frauds that we all hear about, and, and sometimes they have a life of years, you know, they, not just the fraudulent portion, but, you know, I think uh, they're still wrapping up a case um, with regard to Madoff, um, and, you know, there's so much fallout, and I think that the industry uh, stops, and it looks, and it moves forward once it has... Uh, you know, fixed what they think they can, and then again, things will stop and you know, grind to a halt. And oh my gosh, this other giant fraud was just committed. Yep. Let's look at it, and and then how can we improve and, and go forward? So, um, I, I disheartened on one level in that this level of fraud actually occurs much more frequently than the large frauds like Madoff and Enron. Um, but uh, my general, uh, the, the fella I, I went to go work for, I think he paid a fine of about a million, just over a million dollars. Um, and the total fraud I it was in the neighborhood of $2.8 million. Okay. It's just, and it, those types of things happen almost daily. All you have to do is look at the SEC website. And look at all the fines. Litigation, uh, release page. 
and it just it's just constant. It's a never ending, uh, almost it seems like a deluge. But I, I think the tide has turned in that area. Actually, um, uh, when I called the SEC to blow the whistle 13 years ago, I did not have the same protections um, that whistleblowers today have. Uh, and uh, uh, there's now an office of the whistleblower that's dedicated just to listening. Uh, to folks that have uh, special knowledge of frauds that are taking place uh, in the industry today. So, and that's, you know, I think it's just indicative of our times. I mean, of course, we're not able to, you know, protect all circumstances. But, you know, these days, just because of, you know, you never know. I mean, look, look at the uh, Donald Sterling. You know, and look at what he had to go through <laughs> the last, you know, you, you never know who's recording you. You never know who's uh, watching you. Um, you know, Chapo Guzman, who's the you know big drug dealer down in Mexico, just who's who's paying attention, who's watching, and what they can do to get the word out. And so, yeah, it's good. It's good that the SEC has that that level of protection there, so that a person is protected, but also incentivized uh, by by ousting uh, someone that uh, or outing somebody that's that's uh, potentially committing committing fraud. So that's that's one way of tackling it. But yeah, I, I think in our our modern area, it's it's more difficult to to do. Uh, but still, it's it's, it's always uh, it's always going to happen, unfortunately. So it's it's best to you know not not necessarily rely on the on the the arm of government to you know to to protect you from fraudsters. But at the same time, it's good that they are taking protective measures. So well, let's spend like let's just spend a couple minutes on on the whole idea of, of crowdfunding and uh, and Kickstarter specifically, which is. Uh, uh, the medium that you're using to, to try to get some funds to to write this book, um, obviously crowdfunding is is really interesting. What it has created, it's allowed you know individuals who have ideas or projects or um, products or business models or whatever uh, to go on and really say, hey, this is what I want to do, and and I need some money to do it, and and attract money from uh, you know a lot of different areas. And in fact, obviously the the federal government, specifically the securities um, regulation, it, it's allowing for a lot of uh, crowdfunding. People to actually take uh, investor money and, and start up a start up a business. Um, so I know that you've looked in extensively into that. What's your uh, What's your experience been so far? Uh, it's been uh, It's been uh, extremely rewarding uh, to learn uh, a lot uh, what's going on in, in crowdfunding these days. I, I think that uh, recent legislation uh, to uh, free up uh, not just crowdfunding but also equity crowdfunding, where you're actually um, have a project that folks can um, invest in in a very small um, amount. It's pretty special. Uh, so just to be clear, I, that's not what I'm doing on the equity crowdfunding. I, I selected crowdfund, uh, a Kickstarter uh, for my crowdfunding uh, platform, um, which is just essentially, you know, some, some people have called it a pre-sales uh, sort of approach. Um, and I guess it's accurate in some terms, but... Um, it really is just that, a, a way for folks to, to help bring a project to fruition that might not otherwise uh, happen. And um, I, I also selected Kickstarter because it has one very special requirement, is that you, you pick uh, a level uh, of funds that you think you need for your project, um, and you can either successfully raise that or the project doesn't get funded at all. Um, and so right now the, the project is about halfway uh, funded. Uh, I gave it 45 days, and we've got about a week to go. So it's been a big learning curve um, in terms of uh, figuring out the basic uh, workings of a crowdfunding campaign and seeing it 
you know, come to life and, uh, you know, watch it go and the interaction with the backers and, you know, essentially how you and I met and um, just trying to trying to make something happen, um, looking at other projects out there. Um, I'm just in awe of the creativity um, of uh, my fellow man, I guess, and woman and just out there, all the things that people have been able to uh, uh, get going. You know, it essentially goes, you know, straight from the creative um, right into the hands of the would-be buyer, and I think it's a, it's really special. No, amen to that. I mean, it, it's uh, it's always it's always fascinating to see what uh, what the the human being is is uh, is concocting. But uh, but no, we so I, I think it's going to definitely benefit you. It's going to allow you to get your get your story out and uh, and then hopefully help help other individuals that uh, uh, to avoid you know some of the some of the things that uh, that fraudsters are doing out there. But anyway, Chris, it was it was a pleasure to have you on. And uh, what we'll do is we'll put uh, that Kickstarter link in the body of our our blog post. And uh, and so uh, and also we'll put it in kind of the the description of the of the podcast. So if you are interested in in uh, looking at what Chris is up to, you can uh, probably follow him on social media, and we'll put some links in there as well. And uh, and also put the Kickstarter link in there. So if you want to contribute to his uh, uh, to his book, then uh, you can do so. But Chris, uh, like I said again, it's great to have you on, and I appreciate your time, and uh, thanks for telling your story. Thank you so much, Patrick, and if I could just uh, slip it in real quick, the name of the Kickstarter project is The Whistle and the Talon, and it is a nonfiction book project there on Kickstarter. Okay, The Whistle and the Talon. I like that. That's cool. Okay. All right, Chris. Well, we'll, uh, we appreciate it again, and I look forward to hearing about your success. Thank you so much, Patrick. Take care.